What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. We've heard it said, you can't trust the Bible because it was written by men. And men, at best, are fallible. I mean, haven't you played the telephone game? You line up 25 children down the aisle right here. You start right here. You whisper one sentence in the first child's ear. And by the time it gets to the very end of the line, you will not have exactly what you said. A very logical argument. They say, hey, you can't trust the Bible because of our understanding of modern science and how it has proven the claims of Scripture to be faulty. They say, yes, Jesus was a historical figure, but he wasn't God incarnate, and he surely wasn't the one who did all these miracles and wasn't the Son of God. They say he was just an influential teacher. We are told that, hey, since the Bible can't be proven based upon a scientific research and it is faulty at best, then Jesus certainly wasn't God incarnate, then certainly He's not the only way to heaven. And didn't you know that all religions get to heaven? And haven't you heard that there are not any absolute truths? I don't know about you, but, but I'm a little exhausted and tired of hearing all these arguments when any clear research re- related to the word of God will reveal otherwise that, hey, you can trust the lineage of Scripture due to the thousands of manuscripts that we have. That, hey, Jesus was a historical character, and he was more than just an influential teacher. He was God incarnate, as Scripture says, and as he claimed. And that Jesus is, in fact, the only way to heaven. And to the next time I, I hear somebody tell me that, I just don't believe any absolute truths. I just want to ask them, are you absolutely sure there are no absolute truths? Today, if I could label my sermon with, with one title, I believe that, that John is writing here to conclude his entire letter, and he's revealing to us absolute truth. Uh, some commentators call it certainties of the Christian life. And today, the title of my message is these two words, absolute truth. Would you say that with me? Absolute truth. And today, if I could elaborate on that phrase, I want to share this thought with you today, that if you walk with anything, this is what I want you to leave with from this worship service. The absolute truth is the Bible is the absolute truth. The absolute truth is the Bible is the absolute truth. And as we study the book of 1 John, we reveal that there's a lot going on in John's mind. He's trying to combat these Gnostic heretics. He's trying to reveal all these different things, and, and we'll get to that later uh, in the message. But, but the, the question I want to ask today, as we're reading this, we see that John is certain about a lot of different things here. He's revealing to us absolute truth in his own mind, and I want to ask and, and try to seek to answer this thought today. What is the absolute truth God is teaching us from this passage. If the Bible is the absolute truth and it reveals absolute truth, then what is John, 
by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, revealing to us today in God's revealed word in our living uh, life and in the English language. Well, the first thought I'm going to share with you is this, from verse 13. I want to zoom in and focus on verse 13 for just a few moments. And here's the first answer to that question. The absolute truth is we can have faith with assurance. The absolute truth is we can have faith with assurance. Notice, there's a lot of themes that John has in his letter. And one of the themes is knowing that you're saved. Having assurance of your salvation. Having faith that is assured. And here, my friends, we see that John reveals one of the purposes of this small little letter was just that. He says these things, that is everything all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1. Revealing to us that, hey, Jesus is the eternal life. He's been manifested. We have touched him with our hands. We have seen him with our eyes and we have heard him with our ears. We've seen life manifested in human form. And he says, these things have I written unto you that believe. Would you say believe with me? Believe. It means to entrust. It means to put your faith in. And literally, it literally means to entrust and put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did as the son of God. And we know that, that according to this phrase here, to them that believe on the name of the Son of God, that this involves that Jesus was Messiah, that Jesus lived a sinless life, sinless in thought, sinless in word, sinless in deed, and he lived to go to the cross in those 33 years and to pay the sins of humanity so that you and myself could receive pardon for our sins. It's interesting, as we study this letter, we also know that John wrote this letter. He wrote 2 John, he wrote 3 John, he wrote the book of Revelation, and he wrote the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 20 and verse 31, we read about how John is writing that book to convince people to believe. But he's writing this book to convince people how they know that they have come to believe in Jesus. And so that letter or that long book, 21 chapters of the record of Jesus Christ through, the John, through John's letter and his writings re- tries to reveal to the unregenerate world that this was Jesus and he was a son of God and here's the reasons why and here now you need to believe on him. And this book right here, 1 John, reveals to us, hey, there's uh, all these people claiming that they know Jesus, but they don't have the evidence backing up. And he's writing here, here's how you can be assured in your walk and know that you are a believer. I'm glad today that the Christian life is not a hope so, maybe so, wish so religion. I'm glad today that the word of God reveals to us that we can know with all certainty and surety that the Bible is true and that we have experienced salvation. It says, it says, I've written to those who believe, that is those who have entrusted Jesus Christ, that you may know. Now this word know is the word for intellectual knowledge, that you have been fully convinced intellectually that you know that this person is the Messiah and the Son of God. And he says that you've been fully convinced in your own mind that you obtain, you have. It's a present possession. I'm a Christian right now, but I'm also a citizen of heaven. I am an American citizen for sure, but I'm also a citizen of a greater land called heaven. And I already possess that citizenship and membership. 
And he says that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Today, my friends, I'm thankful today that it's the absolute truth that we can have faith that doesn't stand on sinking sand, but it stands in the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And we can have full assurance with that. So today, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're in a season of doubting. God's greatest soldiers in the New Testament and Old Testament and throughout all church history has battled with doubt. And today I want to share with you that you can know that you know that you know by standing upon the sure promises of Scripture. He said, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is a divine oracle from God. He says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he has risen from the dead, you shall be saved. My friends, we can have full assurance today of our faith in Christ. The absolute truth is the Bible is the absolute truth. In fact, there is no greater truth in all the world. The second thought I want to share with you comes from verses 14 through 17. Would you look at those verses with me in the Bible there? The second thought is this. What is the absolute truth God is teaching us from this passage? Well, we talked about how we can have faith with assurance, but secondly, the absolute truth is we can pray with confidence. The absolute truth is we can pray with confidence. Look at verse 14. John, it's obvious here that verse 13 begins his, his um, conclusion to his letter. But before he goes away, he wants to remind these believers that we can have confidence in prayer. Notice verse 14. He says, this is the confidence. Say that word confidence with me. Confidence. This gives the idea of boldness, that we can have the confident boldness of approaching God in prayer. It says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that is in Jesus, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And notice verse 15, it says, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Now, I'm afraid that the greatest hindrance of being a Christian in America is being a citizen of America. And I say that with all respect. Because when we approach prayer, we approach prayer like an American approaches prayer. Give me, give me, give me. I'm needy, needy, needy. God, I want this, and God, I want that. And we, in a sense, demand God to do something. I heard, I heard a pastor years ago, and, and, and I just, I don't know, I, I think very differently as I do now, but he began to pray, and he began to pray with such boldness, saying that, God, let the, the people of God know that there is a man of God here today that believes your word. And Maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong. But I feel like that that kind of praying is too Americanized and not Christianized. Listen to the words from a commentator by the name of Hybert. He says, prayer is not a device for imposing our will upon God, but rather the bending of our will to his in the desire that his good will may be done. Today, my friends, I am thankful to be an American citizen. But I realize that, that me being an American citizen oftentimes hinders me in my walk with God through prayer. Because when I walk to God, I, I'm so guilty of this. I, I, before I even express how holy and how amazing and how awesome God is, it's as if I have the bottle and I'm acting as if God is a genie in a bottle. And, and I'm just saying, hey, God, I need you to do this. And God, I would like for you to do this on my behalf. But here... The Bible reveals to us that when we go to God in prayer, 
It's not my will that I'm asking to be done. It is God's will. You remember Jesus is our model example of praying on the earth. And he said in the garden, right before he was going to the cross, when he was sweating with great drops of blood, the Bible says that he said, not my will, but thy will be done. We know that the writer of Hebrews speaks about how we can have boldness to God in prayer and we can come to the throne of grace in our time of need. And God understands that. But, but before we say, God, I'm needy. God, give me, give me, give me. God, help me, help me, help me. We need to realize that this is the king of kings that we're talking with. And if I could take you back to the ancient world. And if, if you could just imagine that, that America is in a monarchy. It's not a democracy. It's a monarchy. In a monarchy, you can't just walk into the king's court and demand things from the king. You have to be requested by the king or you could die. And today, a greater monarch John is speaking of than the king of Persia or the king of Babylon or the king of Assyria or the king of Egypt or, or whatever king, we're talking about God. And so when we're approaching God in prayer, we need to realize that we're praying in faith because we know that God is going to hear and respond to our prayers. We're praying in his name or, if you will, according to his will. Throughout scripture, you'll see according to his will or in his name. It's literally the same idea. So at the end of our prayer, when we say in Jesus' name, we're saying, God, this is in your son's name and your will be done whatever our request is. And so when we go to God in prayer, I heard, I heard a preacher say this one time. They said that when we say, we tack, Baptists pray with lack of faith because they add, according to your will, may it be done. And I submit to you, that is not a lack of faith. That is a prayer full of faith because we realize that God's gonna hear an answer. And if it's not according to God's sovereign providential plans, then may it not be done. But if it is according to your plan, God, may it be done. And see, that's what John's reiterating here. Back from chapter three, he said the same thing. And now again, before he leaves, he's saying, you can pray with confidence. But then as he transitions to verses 16 and 17, it's so interesting here. It's almost like, like his mind begins to shift because if you've ever read verse 16 and 17, obviously the question in your mind is, what is the sin unto death? It says, if any man see his brother's sin of sin, which is not unto death. Now, let me share this with you. I'm going to get into, the, not to the extreme weeds here, but I'm going to share a few thoughts with you. I'm going to just share my thoughts, not that I've arrived. But I want you to understand this, that the theme of verses 16 and 17 goes along with verses 14 and 15. The point here, John is not trying to get us to get into our theological debates about what does verse 16 mean? What does verse 17 mean? It's the idea of this, is that if we see a brother or sister who is walking down the pathway of sinfulness, we need to pray for them. And God can answer our prayers. And all prayers that are prayed to God are effective according to his will. And that's the point of verse 16 and 17. Now that being said, the question that we should ask here as we read, if, if a man sees his brother. Now notice this is a person who's part of the household of faith. At least that's the way I see it. And, and he sends us in which is not unto death. He shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. It's not that that person is giving him life, but the person is praying to God and God gives him an extension of his life. But then he says, there is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. And then he says, all unrighteous is sin and there is a sin unto death. So what does the sin unto death mean? Before we try to answer this, we need to ask ourselves this question. Is the sin unto death a specific sin? Is it a type of sin or is it a duration of sin? 
And how you answer that question will determine which interpretation outcome you will adopt. And so the first perspective that some scholars have is they say that this is directed to unbelievers experiencing eternal death. And they'll cite the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, not to get too deep in the weeds here, but it was the Pharisees and any person attributing to Jesus Christ his works being accomplished by the power of Satan. And I believe that could only be accomplished in that time period. And now this, the, the unpardonable sin is the sin of unbelief that Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. So this is a, an acceptable view here that this was directed to unbelievers and that are going to experience eternal death. I, I would slightly say that's not me. I don't think that's the case because it's speaking about a brother and sister here who is in the household of faith. But it is true that an unbeliever who dies without Jesus, will experience eternal death. But then the another view is this, and this is a definitely a possible outcome, that the sin and the death is directed to believers receiving God's judgment. And some commentators will cite the book of Acts chapter 5. If you know anything about Acts chapter 5, you know it's a story of two people, a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They promised to God that they'd sell everything they have and give it all to the work of the ministry, and they kept a portion. And in Acts chapter 5, the Bible says that they lied to God, lied to his spirit, and then they were struck with death. Then in the book of Corinthians chapter 11, there's an individual there who is, there were, there were people there who were abusing the Lord's table, and God also struck them with death. And so it is very possible that the sin unto death is a sin that a Christian commits without, with, with extreme unrepentant spirit and God judges them by ending their life. It's possible. But then the final one is directed to anyone who sins and it results in death. And some will cite James chapter five, speaking about how if there's somebody who's sick, you call for the elders of the church, you pray for them, you anoint them with oil, and the prayer of faith, the Bible says, shall save the sick. And it says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. But then at the end of chapter 5, it says, brethren, if any do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converts the sinner from the air of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. I must confess I really don't know exactly which one this is, if it is even any one of these three theories. I think each of them have a level of truth to them. I think it is possible that if I were to go out and I would just get drunk as an absolute skunk, and I get in my car and I drive and I hit somebody and I die, that was a sin that led to my death. And that is certainly a possible explanation here. It is also certainly possible that, that if I were to sin, if I were to make God a specific promise like they did in the early church, and I keep back that promise, that God could do what he did with Ananias and Sapphira with me. That is certainly possible. But I'm going to be honest, honest with you. I don't know. And I think about St. Augustine or Augustine or Augustine, however you want to pronounce his name. He said this, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty and all things charity. Wherever, wherever you decide to land on this view right here on the sin of the death, make sure you have love for somebody who may not be on the same page with you. But the point here, like I said, is not trying to fully discover what this means. It is possible that the meaning got lost somewhere along the way and John's original audience would have known exactly what John meant 
But the point is this. The prayers of God's people on behalf of a sinner who is saved or a sinner who is lost will always be effective until that person passes away. So as long as that brother or that sister or that friend or that foe or that family member has breath in their lungs, you can always lift them up to God in prayer. And we can pray to God with absolute confidence. We can have faith with absolute assurance. But I'm going to share with you from verse 18, a third thought today. The absolute truth is the Bible is the absolute truth. But thirdly, the absolute truth is we, ha- we can have victory over our sinfulness. The absolute truth is we can have victory over our sinfulness. We can overcome sin through the power and the work of Jesus Christ. Now notice here in verse number 18, again, just like in verse 13, just like in verse 15, and just like right here in verse 18, that John uses the word know, and this is the word for intellectual knowledge, that you've been fully convinced intellectually about these things, and it says we know that whoever is born of God, now as I said before, this word born, it literally means to procreate. A husband and wife come together, they have a child. But in the context John is using it, it means somebody who has experienced the rebirth in Christ. They have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. They've been saved and they are a Christian. It says here, notice, isn't this interesting? In verse 16, it says, if a man sins, and now he says that we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. What? John, are you contradicting yourself here? What does this mean? Well, positionally, we know that all those who are in Christ are no longer viewed by God as a sinner who's lost. God sees the blood of Jesus Christ covering us and, and, and that positionally helps our standing with God. But then also the present tense here is, is the idea here is also this, is that somebody who's born of God, somebody who's born again, a child of God, they cannot go, in, they cannot go on living in sin as if they did before they came to faith in Christ without any repentance or without any conviction or without any confession. That is, if we slip back and we fall and stumble into sin, we're going to confess that and God's going to convict us by his spirit. But those who continue to live in that lifestyle and, and as a pig wallows in the mud, if you will, the Bible says that those who are saved cannot do that without God convicting them. And it says, but he that is begotten of God or born of God keeps himself, guards himself, and that wicked one touches him not. As I read this passage, I'm thankful today that through the cross, I have victory over sin. Through Jesus, I can overcome the power and bondage of sin. Through the power of salvation in Christ, I can lay aside my chains and shackles of being a servant and slave to sin and now freely offer my life in full indentured servanthood to Jesus Christ. The absolute truth is you actually can have victory over sin. Doesn't mean you're going to fall and stumble and transgress, but it means in God's sight, you're now viewed as a saint and saved. But I will say this. If you do not know Jesus, no matter how disciplined you might be, I mean, you can wake up at 4 a.m. every day, You could go to the rescue mission and give out food for three hours every single day, then go to your regular job and and then work all day and then come home and, and give all your money to a charity organization. You could do all those things, but you'll never have victory over sin 
unless you're in Christ. And that, my friends, is the absolute truth found in God's word. But I want to draw your attention now to verse 19. What is the absolute truth God is teaching us from this text? We can have faith with assurance. We can pray with confidence. We can have victory over sinfulness. But, but fourthly today, the absolute truth is we can live for God in holiness. The absolute truth is we can live for God in holiness. If you will, this piece of property here has been consecrated, if you will. It has been sanctified. That is, it has been set apart so that we can gather here in this place and worship Jesus Christ. And here, the idea that I think that John is revealing to us in verse 19 is that if we are believers through God's good grace and through the power of the Spirit, we can obey his word and we can live according to his commandments. Look at verse 19. It says, and we know, this is that word for intellectual knowledge again, that we are of God. And if the whole world lies in wickedness, we should not be surprised when the world continues to sin without confessing it to God. We should not be surprised when the world just doesn't want to show up to gather on a place like this on Sundays. We should not be surprised that the world doesn't want to study the Bible. And in fact, we shouldn't be surprised that they have a list as, as long as, as any road in America about reasons why they don't want to believe this book right here. Shouldn't surprise us. But what we should be surprised is somebody who claims faith in Christ and who refuses to obey God's commandments. We should be surprised if somebody claims to be a Christian and they have hatred in their hearts for their brothers and sisters. We should be surprised if there's somebody who claims to be a Christian and they, do not do show, they don't display love to people in the world. We should be surprised if somebody claims to be a Christian and all they do is lie about this and lie about that. I mean, they lie about the job they have, they lie about the salary they have, they lie about everything in their life. We should be concerned if somebody goes around and steals things from Walmart or steals things from their job or steals this and steals that. We should be concerned. You see, I'm convinced today that one of the reasons why this world is so full of hatred to God is because they know God is a moral God. And God reveals to us right from wrong through his word all the way back to the Ten Commandments. And that when we do not see God, we do not obey God, then we have no obligation to abide by his standards. But if you're a Christian, then you have to. You're called and summoned. You've been, if you will, chosen by God to obey his commandments so that the world can see a pure testimony of a Christian life. The Bible presents to us the absolute truth. And we can live for God in holiness. But now I want to share with you finally today, verses 20 and 21. What is this absolute truth? Well, the last aspect of this truth is this. The absolute truth is we can know the one true God, Jesus. The absolute truth is we can know the one true God, Jesus. 
Look at verse 20. The Bible says, and we know, this is the same word that's been used since 13 for the intellectual knowledge. And you're like, why do you keep mentioning that? Well, it's because I'm about to share with you why in a second. It says, and, and we know intellectually that the Son of God has come. We have seen him with our eyes. We've heard him with our ears when we've touched him with our hands. And has given us an understanding. He came and he taught us. And we heard his messages. We heard his sermons. And he revealed to us all these different things about the old covenant and how he's the fulfillment of all those things. And it says, check it out now. That we may know. Would you say no with me? No. Say it again. No. One more time, please. No. So far, from verse 13 all the way to verse 20, John has been using the intellectual word for knowledge. But right here, this one is different. Notice each time it says in our text today, it says know that, know that, know that, know that. And every time he says that, he's using that word for intellectual knowledge. But right here, there's a transition. And it says know him. Know him. Know him. This is the word for intimate knowledge that's been experienced firsthand. And today it's amazing that we can be fully convinced in our minds and then we can experience just like the apostles in a unique way through faith. That we may know him that is true. That we are in him that is true, even his son, Jesus Christ. Now notice this verse, it ends with this statement right here. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, my question for you is this. I want to make you think just slightly. The last sentence there, is this about God the Father or is it about God the Son? It says this is the true God and eternal life because some scholars say the Father, some say the Son. But I want you to keep in mind that the very first verses in the epistle of John is the key to understanding the last concluding statements. Because he says here that this John, he says that this Jesus is the word of life. And if you have him, you have eternal life. And so I submit to you that this statement, this is the true God and eternal life, is about Jesus specifically. And in fact, if I could take you back to the 300s AD, that is 300 years after Jesus was born, there's a man by the name of Athanasius. He was a, a church father and a mighty man of God that God used. And he used this verse right here to deliver against the Arian, Arian, Arianism heresy about Jesus was not fully God. He used this verse to reveal that Jesus is God. And so today we see that yes, Jesus is Messiah. Yes, Jesus is God. Yes, he is Christ. Yes, he's the son of God. Yes, he is God clothed in flesh. Remember, the heresy John was combating was this idea called Gnosticism. And some people were saying that, hey, Jesus was just a regular human like us. And the spirit of God and the spirit of, uh, came upon him at the baptism. And, and he wasn't fully God and fully man all at the same time. And now John is saying, hey, he was fully manifest in the flesh and he was fully God incarnate. But then the last sentence here, verse 21, he says, little children. This is coming from his pastor's heart because John was a pastor. He says, little children, my dearly beloved brothers and sisters who I have nurtured and shepherded, keep yourselves from idols. Keep means to guard. We need to always be on guard. Obviously, this letter was written between 90 and 95 AD, during the time of the Roman Empire dominating the known world. And the Romans were known for being polytheistic. They believed in many, 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 many gods. 
And here, John, in a sense, is, is admonishing them to keep themselves away from those pagan gods. But also, I believe John is alluding to this heresy that was being presented by these Gnostics. And he's saying, hey, do not believe that because that is a wrong form of Jesus and it is therefore idolatry. Obviously today, you know, you're not bowing down and worshiping Zeus. You're not bowing down and worshiping the God of the sky and the God of the water and the God of the land and the God of this and the God of that. But today I want to admonish all of us, myself included, that one of the hardest parts about being a Christian in an an American setting is America itself. And America, even though we do not idolize these images that are gods of the past, but we have other gods in our midst. And I remind us all that anytime we elevate anything above God, it is an idol in our life. And so we need to be cautious. We need to be aware that there are times in our lives that we can, be, uh, we can fall into the temptation of the God of lust, wanting what somebody else has that we don't have, or wanting somebody's spouse when we have this spouse. Greed is another God that we are so quick to see in our culture. Well, I just need more, I need a bigger and better house. I need a faster and nicer car. I need a bigger and better salary. I need, I need more of this and more of that than the God of pleasure, seeking pleasure in all the wrong places except for God himself and success, climbing that corporate ladder. Now, there's nothing wrong with success. There's nothing wrong with pleasure in of itself. God made us to be pleasurable creatures and success is part of this life. But when we idolize success, and put it above God, something is wrong. For example, if our jobs are more important than our relationship with Jesus Christ, our jobs have become an idol. Then materialism. Think about this now. Think about this. I have a storage unit that is full of junk. I do. I have a storage unit, okay? So I'm preaching myself here. I have stuff upon stuff upon stuff upon stuff. I have clothes that I haven't worn in five or ten years, and so do you. We all do, or at least maybe you don't. Maybe you have arrived and I haven't. God bless you. But in our culture, we are tempted to just go get a credit card and use somebody else's money to buy whatever we want. And the God of materialism, there's nothing wrong with materials, but materials weigh us down and distract us from what's important in our life. Today, I want to admonish us all as we come to a close of this book not to be given over to idols. And John was writing here with two major points about God in mind. God is light and God is dark. And what that means is that we are called to share the light of God's truth in a world full of darkness and we are called to display the good news of God's love in a world full of hatred. And he had three tests in this letter and I close with these questions. Test one is doctrinal. Do you believe Jesus is Christ? Test two is moral. Are you obeying the commandments of Christ? Test three is social. Are you displaying the love of Christ? My friends, the absolute truth is the Bible is the absolute truth. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. 
Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.